Hey, I'm Nylon, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome to Talking Direction, the behind-the-scenes podcast going deep into the world of theater, film, television, and online content to celebrate directors, those visionary artists at the center of plays, musicals, movies, and TV shows enjoyed around the world. Each week, we welcome acclaimed guests to explore imagination, risk-taking, and craft, as well as looking at the past, present, and future of the creative industries. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. We're available on all platforms or by visiting dramaleague.org. Thanks for listening and for Talking Direction. Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stellion Shanks, Artistic Director of the Drama League. For over 25 years, audiences around the world have found joy in the trailblazing work of my guest today, director Stafford Arima. Nominated for an Olivier Award for his direction of the West End premiere of the musical Ragtime, Stafford made history in 2015 when he became the first Asian-Canadian to direct a musical on Broadway, Allegiance, starring Lea Salonga and George Takei. But musical theater aficionados hold Stafford equally in high regard for some of his off-Broadway creations, including the Outer Critics Circle Award-winning Alter Boys, the revisal of the musical Carrie, Saturday Night in its landmark production at the York Theatre Company, and the Tin Pan Alley Rack. Outside of New York, his work has been featured at the Stratford Festival, Paper Mill Playhouse, Goodspeed Musicals, The Old Globe, and many, many more as well as acclaimed concert presentations of Candide, The Secret Garden, and a tribute to Sondheim with the San Francisco Symphony, Lincoln Center, and the Boston Pops, respectively. He is currently the Artistic Director of Theatre Calgary, the largest theatre in southern Alberta and one of Canada's most important cultural institutions. He serves as Artistic Advisor for Broadway Dreams and is an adjunct professor at the University of California, Davis. Please help me welcome Stafford Arima to Talking Direction. Hi, Stafford. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate talking to you today. Um, I am feeling, I don't know about you, uh, a little auspicious today. We're recording this on the last day of March 2020 and coming, you know, around what I hope is closer to the end of the COVID-19 pandemic than the beginning. Um, But I feel it's auspicious because just yesterday we saw the first tickets go on sale for the return of a Broadway show, um, Diana the Musical, which has announced that it's going to open in December. Um, And that feels like a really good sign to me. Um, I'm wondering how your pandemic has been. And, you know, are you feeling hopeful in the way that I am about this moment? I am feeling hopeful, Gabriel. You know, I think one of the the greatest gifts, uh, or perhaps if not a gift, but the silver lining with regards to COVID and kind of going through this year uh, together uh, across the world is that it has allowed artists, theater practitioners, creators to uh, re-examine uh, so much about their um the, the the kind of metal or the muscle that exists within us. Uh, we've been around for a very long time. Uh, 
pre-television, pre-film, pre-the talkies, you know, theater began in the form of ritual. And we are going to be here for a very, very long time, uh, much after this COVID uh, situation that we're in. So on that uh, illustrious announcement of Diana, it brings me a tremendous amount of, of uh, hope, excitement for the future. I'm I'm cautiously excited, and I say cautiously because I think in many ways uh, the um, the world, and specifically North America, I would probably say North America, which would include Canada and the United States, we've been on a slightly different trajectory uh, than, uh, say, our, our, our friends and families and brothers and sisters over in Australia. Uh, and so I'm not too sure how it's all going to pan out at the end of 21. But I do uh, believe that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Sometimes it feels like it's 100 feet away. And in moments like that announcement uh, from Diana, it feels like it's 20 feet away. And uh, But I am definitely hopeful that we are collectively moving towards new beginnings, new awakenings, and and better understandings with regards to how uh, our industry is going to come together and figure this out. That's really so beautifully put. I think those better understandings are what we're all searching for in this moment. And you mentioned that so many of us have had time to re-examine uh, the way we do what we do, the way we direct plays, the way we uh, interact as artists in the world, uh, what our responsibilities are. I personally found this to be a moment of reflection on practices that I learned very early. You know, um, I, I did my first professional show at 18 years old, and some of the patterns and procedures and and ways we work are just ingrained in me. And this was my first real moment, as you say, to re-examine, to think about why I do the things I do in the ways that I do them, and are there better ways to do that? Um, I'm curious how you discovered theater and and how you came to directing. Was it something you always wanted to do from an early age or or did you discover it further along your journey? I think for my journey started um, in when I was 11 years old and uh, I was uh, my mother took me to see my very first theatrical experience which was Andrew Lloyd Webber's Evita at the Schubert Theater in 1980. It was a matinee performance. Lonnie Ackerman was Ava. And uh, I sat in the Schubert Theater uh, in the last row of the, whatever, the second balcony, because it was, you know, at that point, it was one of the hottest tickets uh, in the the early 80s. And I was um, upset. I was uh, sulking. I was probably petulant because I didn't want to, I didn't go to Los Angeles with my mom to sit in a dark room with a bunch of people uh, experiencing something called a Vita. I wanted to be at Universal Studios. I wanted to be at, uh, you know, SeaWorld, Disneyland. 
and the lights dimmed. And what I really remember about that experience was that there were like ants, little ants that were running around this, uh, this floor. And um, I uh, was... Uh, you know, I was, what do you call it? I was bit, you know, I, I, the theater bug bit me at that point. And I really became um, an Evita kind of crazed fan. You know, I just, I, I've seen the musical, you know, over 48 times in my life. And wow. I've seen it um, on Broadway, West End, you know, the dinner theater production, um, uh, I just loved Evita and really it was my awakening to this art form specifically that we call musical theater. I think as a young person growing up in Toronto, uh, I uh, had made the decision that I was going to be uh, an actor. I'm not a singer. Um, I can carry a tune, but I, I felt in many ways that acting was going to be the way uh the way it was uh that was my calling i was very fortunate uh to have uh my mother took me my mother loved the theater and so she would uh you know take me to new york and my very first broadway show was uh, dream girls uh with the original company uh sitting in the first row of the imperial theater uh, and at the end of act 1 i remember i turned to my mother and i said is she having a heart attack i had never experienced that kind of um of of that kind of power uh, you know, uh, in anything. So, uh, I, I also got a chance to see, um, uh, it was funny, the matinee performance of, of, of M Butterfly, David Henry Huang's play starring BD Wong. And I think because it was one of the first times that I had seen some sort of, you know, someone that was on that stage that looked like me, I thought, oh, I'm going to become the Canadian B.D. Wong. And um, that's that's going to be my calling. Uh, inevitably, I had a, I guess one would call it an Oprah aha moment uh, in my uh, late teens when I realized that I probably wasn't going to be B.D. Wong, not because I couldn't act or not because I wasn't even a decent actor, but the actors that I was fascinated and intrigued and with were, were those that um, would um, really transform and become that character, whether you, uh, you, know, you gain 100 pounds for the role or you lose 100 pounds for the role. And um, I just figured out kind of through, an, through a, my own self-reflection that maybe acting wasn't going to be where, where the calling really was to take me. And uh, it wasn't until I went to university, I did a four years honor degree at York University in Toronto, uh, where I met a uh, professor named Ron Singer, who was really inspirational and guided me to look at the world of directing. And I never thought of myself as a director. I guess when I look back now and I think of the days of high school and in the theater class and, and you know, the uh, uh, Deanie Lettman, who was the drama teacher, she would, you know, split the room in half, half of the room. 
you you do a docudrama on something and the other half of the room you do a docudrama on something put together kind of a devised work and i always chose the role of the director and and again i didn't know why i did back then i just did it and that was probably because i was organized on some level or i had a greater vision on some level course as a young person in high school one doesn't know all of those things so jump cutting to university it it was a wonderful uh, sense of encouragement from professor singer who inevitably uh uh guided me as i said towards my path as a director i just have to name i had no idea of of your seminal experiences in the theater and I'm trying to think about what my life would have been had my first experience been Evita and I had seen Dreamgirls and In Butterfly Together. These are, at least in in my um, conception, very visceral pieces, very um, full of, you know, Michael Bennett and, and incredible sort of um, flourish. Um, it's It's... Fast, you know, you said you were bit by the theater bug. I would say you didn't stand a chance, um, <laughs> you know, with work like that. Um, well, let me move forward to then from that moment you became a director um, uh, and started to think of yourself in this new way. I first encounter your work, I think, I think the first time I see one of your shows is in 2005 uh, with Alter Boys. And, you know, when I knew you were coming on the podcast, this is something I have wanted to say to you now for almost 20 years. Um, Alter Boys remains one of the most enjoyable nights I have ever had in the theater. Um, it, it really was such smart, um, satiric comedy. Uh, you know, I, I have great emotional nights at the theater and moments of transformation. But to think about the pure joy uh, that musical comedy can give you. Alter Boys was really an exceptional moment for me. Um, and then when I started to do my research and look at how your career has progressed, I noticed the um, Carrie and I noticed the Secret Garden concert that has, um, you know, lived so large in the memory of people who experienced it. And Saturday Night, you know, these these are all musicals that I think in some way are fan favorites. You know, musicals that either have cult followings or, or over the years have developed passionate fan bases. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, you know, having drawn that thread together, how do you choose the projects you direct or, or do they just come to you? Is there, is there no pattern? Is it random? It's a great question, Gabriel. You know, I, I, I think, you know, as I, you know, I turned 52 uh, this month, and as one, you know, starts to look back, and uh, and you know, where did these musicals come from? Where did these projects come from? You know, they came from, you know, the one show that I would say I was instrumental in kind of bringing to the stage was a uh, was the moment in which Carrie the revisal, we'll call it, uh, the revisal of Carrie at uh, the Lucille Hortel. That was one project that I 
really kind of harnessed the idea of I want to do it. I I have an idea of how I want to do it, and I want to have an opportunity to meet with the authors, um, Dean Pitchford, Larry Cohen, and Michael Gore. And um, you know the way the universe works, and you look at. Uh, uh, I guess it was very uh, serendipitous that me interested in doing this, they were also interested in uh, looking at the possibility of a revival. Uh, and so when when the universe, you know, she brought us together and as a result, uh, we had that production at the Lucio Lortel. Uh, but the other shows were all based on relationship building that had occurred. Uh, you know, I was um, uh, working uh, in my time from 1998 through to 2005, which is kind of the, I guess, my New York debut with Alter Boys. Um, I had been working as an assistant. I had been working as a uh, assistant director, an associate director, a resident director, and um, one of uh, the uh, the company, one of the assistant company managers of of Ragtime on Broadway, was a uh, a gentleman named Ken Davenport. And uh, Ken Davenport, as we know now, is not uh, no longer a company manager. And so, the relationship that Ken and I formed in those early days moved on to. Uh, the world of altar boys when Ken uh, and Robin Goodman uh, were uh, our kind of lead producers for altar boys. Robin Goodman, interestingly, I had worked with when I was the associate director of a class act on Broadway with Lonnie Price and uh, Robin Goodman at the time was the, um, I think she was the associate producer. So, you know, a lot of uh, the, the work that I've had the, the blessings of experiencing were based on relationships. I think about my uh, the incredible gift of directing the uh, premiere of Ragtime in the West End, and that that occurred because solely of the relationship that I had with Terence McNally, uh, Lynn, and Stephen, and uh, you know that that relationship went way back to the uh, years of uh, when I considered myself the vice president of uh, Xeroxing. I was the, um, uh, the, the photocopier. <laughs> I was the photocopier boy for a uh, ragtime in Toronto when it was uh, a reading, when we did a reading of it uh, in Toronto. And uh, I was living for those uh, couple of weeks in a uh, in a copier room where I was uh, madly xeroxing uh, new script pages and new um, music pages for uh, the music team and obviously for the actors. So, uh, you know, I think of that twenty years, thirty years later, and I always remind um, you know everybody that relationships are key. Uh, that. Uh, you know, who would have ever thought that the the Xerox boy uh, in 1995 uh, would um, in 2005, you know, 20 years or whatever later, direct the show um, on the West End? 
how does the Xerox boy, you know, move to that kind of possibility? Um, not because that Xerox boy was the most talented director on the planet. I don't consider myself the most talented person on the planet. Um, you know, uh, but I had good relationships with Lynn and Stephen and Terrence and that forged into that opportunity that really changed my life. Uh, so I look now, Gabriel, years later at these shows and what, what I think they all have in common is that I've always been interested and intrigued uh, about stories that revolved around the other. And uh, the other is, uh, uh, is really all of us. I think all of us, no matter uh, where we were born, what our upbringing was, um, what the color of our, of our skin is, we all in some ways feel like the other. Uh, and when I look at the kind of the, the work, I, I look at all of these musicals and a couple of the plays and the other seems to be the kind of dominant theme. And that's perhaps probably because I have always felt on some level like uh, the other, uh, being a guest in the United States for, you know, 20 years of my life. I moved to New York in 1998 and I spent 20 years there before coming back to Canada to be the artistic director at Theatre Calgary. I've always felt welcomed in America. I always felt incredibly um, nurtured by the theatre community in the United States. But I was always another because I wasn't born there. Uh, I was a, uh, I guess, a resident alien or whatever it was called for a little while. I did become a citizen because I felt it was important. Well, to be honest, I became a citizen because I wanted to vote for Obama. I wanted to put um, an X beside that name. And uh, and so I became a citizen and, and, and now hold dual citizenship in both countries. So... Uh, I'm fascinated by the other because I believe that that's all, that's all of us. We are all the other on some level. And, and that theme, I think, continues to permeate the work that I'm interested in, the work that I'm attracted to, and, and the work that um, I enjoy experiencing as a, a theater goer. I so much of what you're saying feels so instructive to me on how we can move through our creative lives. I think we all feel um, othered in some way. I think that is the internet intersectional truth of humanity, that we are all many things, but many of those things distanced us from one another. And I also think relationships are in many ways the way we overcome what makes us other. Um, yeah, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the experience of being an associate director and resident director, um, <clears throat> as well as the incredible story of Ragtime. I did not know you started at a copier. Um, what, what a wonderful journey that is. I'm thinking about all of the early career directors who are part of the Drama Leagues programs. You know, we, we serve as a home for those artists, um, in New York, and they often want to follow um, that path, but but find it difficult. 
uh, to move from being an assistant or an associate director into the the lead director chair. I wonder if you, um, if I could just ask you to drill down for a second um, into what is it about relationship building that um, you would offer as advice to other artists, you know, as that, how did you build the relationship with Ken or the creative team of Ragtime? What, what's important to you in finding those people who maybe are a part of your tribe or your extended artistic family? It's so amazing. You know, you, 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 you asked this question because I'm, I'm constantly reminded that this industry is very, very small. And and one might think of it as a huge, you know, and 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 um, unattainable, or I don't know how to connect with it. You know, I you know the the I was a kid born in Toronto. I lived in a a, a suburb called North York. I had no uh, connection to the arts on any level, other than the fact that my mom took me to see theater. Uh, my parents were not in the arts. I didn't have relatives in the arts. I didn't have relatives or friends in New York City. I didn't have any any connectivity points that would allow a young kid in Canada to inevitably say, oh, I think I'm going to be in New York one day and live there for 20 years. Um, so if a kid from Toronto can inevitably move to New York and 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 have a have a rich time while they're there then anyone can anybody can and that sounds kind of like really what do you mean anybody it's not it's not well let's take a cue from Barbara Streisand's Yentl nothing's impossible uh, and let's also take a cue from one of my favorite songwriters and uh, performers, Mariah Carey, make it happen. To me, those are two mantras that I've always believed in. And those two mantras about uh, that nothing's impossible and that you can make things happen. Uh, now, making things happen doesn't mean like there was a time where there was a book called The Secret and you just believe that you're going to get a Mercedes Benz and then it appears on your driveway. No, that's, that's not what I believe, but making it happen is, is a verb. It's an action. Make it happen. You have to do, you can't just be. And, uh, so when you think about relationships, um, be engaged with, uh, those individuals and those individuals are not just the fancy writers from New York City. It's realizing that everybody involved from the fancy writer of New York City down to the Xerox boy are all still part of an ecosystem of respect and an ecosystem of creativity. Uh, not only was I respectful to Lynn and Stephen and Terrence, but they treated me with respect. And, and so that kind of feedback loop that happened just became kind of uh, fuel for uh, a relationship that blossomed and continued. Uh, it does take two to tango, to use a cliche. And, and obviously, if you are respectful to someone and they're not respectful to you back, 
then you move aside and you and you move on from that person. But I was very fortunate to have uh, respectful relationships with people like the uh, authors of Ragtime or like the Ken Davenports or the Robin Goodmans who um, we connected as people, we connected as theater people. And, and it didn't matter if I was 20 and someone was 30 or I had only this much experience and this person had that much experience. We connected as uh, theater people. And, uh, and, and so relationships are key because everything we do in the theater is about relationships, whether that is the relationship between artist and uh, audience, whether that's the relationship between artist and producer, art versus commerce. Uh, it's all about relationships. And so the more I think people understand that it isn't only about me, myself, and I, and it's hard not to feel that way because as freelancers, we have to figure out what our next gig is. We have to figure out how we're going to pay our rent. But the more you you move outside of that kind of me, myself, and I kind of energy, vibe, or even necessity that you think, you know, that's how I have to be in order for me to survive. I think the more open one becomes to allowing these relationships to kind of ebb and flow. And um, they are, for me, and again, you know, anything I'm going to say is going to be completely different from someone else's journey. But I did find that relationships were key in, I mean, t even today, when I look at today and I think about the first time that I ever saw Lonnie Price uh, was when I was a young person and I went to see a play, a musical in Toronto called Durante. And Lonnie Price played Jimmy Durante in this musical in Toronto. Jump cut to, uh, you know, years later and I'm sitting in a room and I'm now the artistic uh, or the associate director for a class act, a project that Lonnie is uh, directing and uh, starring in and co-writing. Now jump cut to 2020 and uh, I'm the artistic director at Theatre Calgary and Lonnie Price is coming to direct a brand new musical here called The Louder We Get. So you look at that and you say, relationship, look where it began. I, I met this man, um, I met this, met, met this performer at a Durante musical, jump cut 30 years later or whatever it is. And, and now as the artistic director, he's directing a, a, a brand new musical at, at Theatre Calgary. Again, it's that those connectivity points are there. And that's not because Lonnie and I are the bestest of friends. We talk to each other every day and whatever else. We are we are good friends. We love each other. We respect each other. But we've maintained that relationship from the first moment I saw him at uh, Durante and I held out my my program and he signed it with a big pen because we didn't have Sharpies back then all the <laughs> way to uh, louder we get. I still remember the same thing, you know, with Marin 
uh, Maisie and I, I was a younger person. I went to the, to a preview performance of passion and, um, drove up in my, you know, my Volkswagen and we, and me and a couple of friends would stay at the Y on 34th street, you know, for $30 a night or whatever. And lined up at the TKTS booth and got tickets to Stephen Sondheim's passion. And I sat there and was amazed at the work by Marin and uh, Jerry and Donna and Steve and James and everything that was connected to that piece. And I stood outside that stage door with my hand outstretched and got Marin Maisie's autograph you know, and then I look another 10 years later and we're sitting in a theater, Marin and I, as she is playing the role of mother on Broadway and I'm Frank Galati's assistant on that show. And then I look for another five years later and we're at the Lucille Lortel and I'm directing Marin in Carrie, the revival. So again, relationships, uh, connect, connection points and um how if one nurtures those relationships respectfully uh, that uh, you can have long relationships with people, um, you know, from standing at a stage door to inevitably directing them uh, in, uh, in a piece that you are working on. Such a beautiful circle of respect and creativity over time. Um, and I think really instructive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, I would love to jump ahead in your career a little bit, uh, because I really want to talk about your debut on Broadway, Allegiance, um, because for many reasons. Um, probably first, I, I think it's one of the most important musicals of the last decade. Um, and just for our listeners who may or may not have seen it, um, Allegiance is based in part on the true life experiences of George Takei, uh, who many people know as um, Lieutenant Sulu on Star Trek. But I will just also say I've had the incredible pleasure to be with George for an extended period of time and just one of the loveliest people I've ever had the pleasure to know in this business. Um, the musical follows a family, the Kimura family, um, in the years of World War II following the attack on Pearl Harbor as this family is forced to leave their farm in California and are sent to a relocation center in Wyoming. Um, and I just want to quickly note that for anyone who didn't see it, uh, it just became available on the streaming service Broadway HD. So I really encourage you to go see it um, on Broadway HD. Um, I come to this because I thought it was a really important musical when I saw it, Stafford. But I also, as I was preparing for this interview, we, you know, I am watching daily reports of the rise in violence against AAPI people. Um, we uh, had an enormous shooting just last week um, uh, in Atlanta here, and. I feel like Allegiance is a story that really needs to be told over and over and over. Then I thought about you having to direct it. And I immediately felt as a director myself a sense of intimidation because I would want to get the story so right. And I know that often uh, can be a difficult thing for directors who are telling such important stories. I'm really 
curious to hear how you came to that piece and and how you approach telling such an important story, especially with George in the cast. What a what a great gift to have George right there for you. What was that like for you? You know, the journey of Allegiance uh, was uh, really, I think, a uh, one of uh, one of the most fulfilling experiences uh, that I've had. Part of the reason is my uh, family in Canada was interned during World War II. So the that story, even though I wasn't interned, but my father and grandmother and uncle and aunts, etc., were interned. So it's always been kind of a part of my, my history on some level. Uh, although growing up, we never talked about those days or the times in the camps, as um, my family would refer to it as. But it was part of, of of my family's history, and so you know, being asked to uh, to direct a a reading, you know, back in two thousand and ten, uh, was um, was just so thrilling because uh, you know uh, it was. It wasn't my story, but it was uh, it was a story that resonated for, you know, uh, over 100,000, you know, Japanese Americans and, you know, uh, thousands of Japanese Canadians. Uh, How do you get it right? Well, what what was so extraordinary about that process was because George was involved, George, who had been interned as a young boy, you know, his experience um, about. the 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 realities of his story uh, were very uh, influenced the uh, the libretto and the direction that the show took, um, and it was also very important that uh, we weren't telling a historical story; we were telling a a family story that happens. The backdrop happens to be World War Two. And uh, so as soon as the show started to shift from a kind of historical musical to a musical that happened to be about an historical event, the show started to thrive and to find its way in, in, I think, in a really beautiful, in a beautiful manner. Uh, And, you know, through 2010, uh, you know, it was a couple of years before we went to the Old Globe in San Diego, where it had its world premiere in, uh, I think it was September of 2012. And uh, then, um, you know, three years later, uh, it came to Broadway in October of, of 2015, I think was when we began previews. So, you know, when you think about that journey from 2009, which was really the first time it had a reading, I wasn't involved in the 2009 reading, but um, of Allegiance, uh, from 2009 to 2015, you know, we're talking, you know, what, six years of, of development. And uh, we didn't know at the time, you know, I think we were all just focused on the show. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that, uh, you know, and I'm not sure if this statement holds true today, but um, this, uh, you know, our, our, our creative team had four uh, 
um, AAPI friends, you know, on the creative team, the, the, the music and the lyrics were written by, uh, Jay Kuo. Um, the director was, uh, uh, Asian, our sound designer, uh, was Asian, our associate director was Asian, you know? So, I mean, that's a lot of uh, representation, not, not just the fact that there were a lot of wonderful, a, excuse me, AAPI friends on the stage, but the actual creative team, the actual people who were part of that creative process were, um, uh, were Asian friends. And so I didn't think of it at that time. You know, it was only after the fact that I started to, because people were saying, hey, did you realize this? Or, hey, did you even know that this was happening? Did you intentionally do that? No, the reality is the uh, the, the team came together because it was the team. And uh, I think in many ways, you know, the show had a, had a uh, honest uh, expression of what it was. It, w- it was the first, uh, I guess one would call it the internment musical. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to be the one and only. I don't know if there will be, you know, in the future, other shows that want to deal with this, uh, this, this historic experience uh, in a musical format. Uh, but I have so much pride in that show you know it lasted uh four months on broadway uh it was recorded obviously for uh posterity uh, not only for the um the world of you know the score was recorded but it was it's now available as you said on broadway hd and uh dvd and all those other things so you know uh, I think the show was a bit advanced for its time. I think, you know, if if the show opened now, if we weren't in COVID, I, I wonder if it would have, if people would have responded to it differently. You know, the fact that we are talking about immigration uh, and not just this year, but we've been talking about it over the last uh, four or five years. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of hard to say, but it doesn't matter what it could have been or what it was. It, 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 it's what it is. And what it is, is a piece of musical theater that, uh, defied the odds. Uh, it was a show that many people thought shouldn't go to Broadway, couldn't go to Broadway because who wants to go and see a show called Allegiance about a, uh, historical event that perhaps is uh, is a bit of a stain on the American flag. It's not going to be some humzinger of a musical where people are going to run out uh, toe-tapping. Uh, so the fact that our lead producer, Lorenzo Tione, uh, really, to quote Mariah Carey again, made it happen uh, and was relentless in making it happen with uh, the other producers and investors that were part of the uh, journey. Uh, my hats will always go off to Lorenzo and that team because they made it happen. I think you're absolutely right when you call it, uh, or when you suggest that it might have been before its time. I think of it not um, only as a as a trailblazer, as you say, the, right now it is, you know, the first musical about the um, 
period of history of internment. But I also think it sits very interestingly in the canon of wartime um, set musicals, uh, so many of which had a patriotic bent to them, um, both the musicals created during actual World War II um, and the musicals that have sort of told that story since. I'm thinking about Yank and I'm thinking about those kind of pieces. Um, it feels like a very necessary counterpoint to the American um, storytelling of World War II. It feels um, unique and vital in a way. So thank you so much for that work. And, and yes, to everyone on that team, thank you for helping us with that. Um, I'd love to move to today and to talk a little bit about Theater Calgary. Um, you are the artistic director there. And, you know, from one artistic director to another, my sense is that that job in this moment um, is a pretty complicated one. It feels like uh, artistic leadership is changing rapidly and evolving during this moment. Um, you know, and to bring our conversation around to the hope that I began with, you know, as we are approaching slowly that reopening of live performance that so many of us crave, I think what the artistic directors of the world decide to put on stages when we are able to be back is going to be very crucial to how this industry moves forward. Um, what we put on stages will have automatically conversations about equity and social justice buried in them. It will also be, as art always does, um, it will be an attempt to help the world heal after a global catastrophe. Um, and so with all of that big lofty thought that I just put on this, I'm, I'm really curious how you as an artistic director are seeing your role and responsibility in this moment and how you plan to approach that reemergence of theater Calgary. You know, it's, it's, it's when I, when, when I think about the future and I think about all of the elements of what uh, is going to go into uh, the future of theater, the future of representation, the future of storytelling, uh, the future of our audience, um, it really comes down to one thing for me right now. And, and, and what I'm most concerned about and excited at the same time is how our art form is going to evolve how the practice of theater is going to evolve. And that practice isn't just about playwriting. It's also about producing. It's also about, um, you know, outreach. It's also about accessibility uh, and, of course, representation. And I'm concerned, uh, why I'm, I'm concerned is that I think that there is a, a, a tremendous um, rock that has to be... Uh, pushed up Mount Everest. Uh, and that rock uh, is heavy. It's daunting. And, uh, and there are a lot of people who are afraid of that rock because, oh my goodness, if I make the wrong step, if I do the wrong thing, it's going to fall and squash and whatever else. Um, however, 
The reason I'm excited at the same time, a contradiction of sorts, is because theater people, theater practitioners, theater creators are in their DNA, have an understanding and have a, I would say, perhaps a passion to pivot, to improvise. We, uh, we, as an actor, you're on that stage, the prop isn't there, you don't stop the show and wait for the prop, you improvise, you pivot. Uh, when you're in a big musical and you've got a fabulous new swing that goes on for the very first time and you know covering all of these tracks and maybe they're a little off here and a little off there you don't stop and scowl you work and you improvise and you you collaborate so i think in many ways as we're looking towards the future that the notion of pivoting collaborating uh and evolving while we have a collective boulder to push up a mountain is going to be not only daunting and not only scary, but exhilarating and inevitably is going to make a change for the future. As an artistic director, no matter where we are practicing, I think it is incumbent on us uh, as leaders uh, of the communities to help push that boulder up in the best way that we can. I look at Theatre Calgary and I feel so blessed to have a brand new executive director, Maya Cholden, who is coming from Pig Iron Theatre in Philadelphia. And uh, Maya brings with her uh, experience, brings with her passion for theatre, and brings with her a commitment to uh, looking at uh, equality, diversity, inclusivity, and moving that boulder up this, this kind of uh, metaphorical mountain uh, with her colleague, myself. And that, that boulder, um, you know, change, some might say things have to change today, tomorrow. There is a uh, phrase in Allegiance uh, that was part of a song, uh, that phrase, Ishikara Ishi, Ishikara Ishi. What it means and translates itself to is um, stone by stone, a mountain can be moved. And so when I think about that boulder going up that mountain, we collectively across our planet are going to have to do everything that we can day by day, step by step, boulder by boulder or stone by stone, Ishikata Ishi, that is inevitably going to create a space for the future of our industry. That future includes actors, artistic directors, producers, audiences, government uh, bodies who look at granting and how arts are funded in our countries. And so inevitably, as much as I'm interested in the results, as most people are, uh, I'm really more interested in the journey and interested in how 
Theater Calgary can be part of that discussion and be part of that movement. And in 10 years or 12 or 15, however long I decide to stay here, uh, that that will then will be able to pass on the torch to the next uh, artistic director and or executive director to continue to move that boulder up that mountain. It's it's for the future of of those emerging artists and those emerging audiences. Maybe those emerging artists of today become the judges of tomorrow. And so I'm interested in in being able to foster that kind of of awakening within our industry, within our communities, within our audiences that lead them down the path towards those awakenings that, again, might not be revealed until way past the point that I've I've left Calgary uh, or way past the point that even all of us are alive. And maybe it's our it's our children or our children's children who will benefit from the work that is being done now stone by stone. Thank you so much for pushing that boulder up the mountain. Um, uh, it, it's very inspirational to hear how you talk about your work there. We are almost out of time, so I'd love to come to one final question. Um, it's a question that resonates for a number of us at the Drama League. Um, I'd love to ask you to think back to that young boy sitting in the balcony of Evita, watching the ants run around, um, who encounters Dream Girls and in Butterfly, these seminal works, um, the, who decides to become an actor and then starts to think about directing, taking you back to that young person. If you could give some advice back through time, to your younger self, something that you know now that you really wish you had known then, what would that advice be? Well, I, I go back to the original quote that I shared earlier that nothing's impossible mm. uh, because we as human beings put up so many walls, so many obstacles. We're also there are other people who put up walls and obstacles around us. And it's hard to imagine that, um, you know, somebody who is living in a certain circumstance could ever, uh, you know, go, uh, go past that or move through that. And um, I will say that, you know, I was very lucky that I didn't have a tremendous amount of obstacles. Although now I'm going to, I, I retract that because I guess one could say you had a biggest, one of the biggest obstacles you had is that you were not legally allowed to work in the United States. And I guess that is a big obstacle because that's, you know, I'm, it wasn't that I was born in, uh, you know, Tucson and just wanted to move, you know, Northeast. I, I, yes. I, I lived in a country that I, you can't just cross the border and say, okay, people hire me. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, it's a great question, Gabriel, and I wish I had a, I had a real succinct answer, but I think that, um, I, I, you know, I, I think about that kid sitting in that balcony and I think about that 
young person in a Xerox room inhaling that uh, that fluid for eight hours a day. And I guess I never, I don't know, this is going to sound crazy. I, I didn't, it wasn't like I was in that Xerox room thinking, okay, this is going to lead me to New York. Or by saying hello to this person, I am therefore going to get that job. Um, I, I guess what I would say to that young person and kind of articulating it a little bit with you now is, is that to, um, to be, and again, that's going to sound weird too, because I, I said earlier in this conversation, not to be, but to do, I guess, let go and let God, meaning I can't control what's going to happen in my career. And, and as much as I might want to, and I've had wonderful um, mentors and, and an incredible agent, John Bazzetti, who was very instrumental in help guiding me. But on some level, it is all going to be what it's going to be. And uh, however, if you allow yourself to let go to that process, and then you allow yourself to motivate yourself through action, the doing of theater, and that doing is going to the theater, reading plays, reading biographies, uh, going to school, directing for your church, uh, community engagement, like it's all of that is doing. And if you, if you let go, the it's going to happen in the way it's meant to happen. I didn't have a plan and maybe that's another piece of advice. So I'm I'm completely all over the place, Gabriel. The other piece <laughs> of advice is 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 is, is to is to uh, to be fluid, to to not say to yourself, okay, at this time I have to have this. This point I better have ten Broadway shows on my resume. I have had to have recorded six, um, you know, this and I never had that. I never put myself through that. Um, I was I was seduced by the notion of that when I did move to New York because the rat race of New York and the and the kind of competitiveness of the city and our industry pulled me into a sense of well I need to am I who am I racing against person X person Y and as I as I continue to let go of that and just be even though I was doing, and I was still in a, in a kind of verb action mode, um, then then it was then it became less uh, harrowing and less difficult, uh, and so it's a process of letting go. It's a process of of trusting the journey and the universe. And it's also a process of to know that nothing's impossible. Because as soon as you say, oh, this isn't possible, how can I, or maybe I shouldn't, or this is not going to work out, then you you erect these walls that, you know, are, are detrimental to the journey that you are inevitably supposed to go on. Absolutely. That's... You are a font of 
um, wisdom and experience. Thank you so much for that. Um, Stafford Arima, thank you. Um, we are looking forward to seeing what comes next for you at Theater Calgary and uh, here in New York. We hope you will be back soon. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, friend. And also, please stay safe and healthy during these uh, these unprecedented times that we're in. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Talking Direction. Join us every week by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us and engage with us directly on all social media platforms with the handle at DramaLink. Talking Direction is a project of the DramaLink of New York, America's only not-for-profit lifelong home for stage directors and the audiences who treasure their work on stage and films on television and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help theater folk and their families who are suffering from economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you a part of our Drama League family. Thank you for listening. Until next time.